This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So I don't mean this to be an uncomfortable question, but have you ever plagiarized anything? If I had, I would... Softball. Would I be saying it? <laughs> I certainly would not be admitting it on a podcast. Um, but the answer is, you know, I don't... I don't copy other people's words and claim that they're my own in academic papers or the multiple political speeches that I give. But as a novelist, I'm borrowing and outright stealing when I can get away with it, you know, ideas, plots, structures from other writers at all times. You know, I mean, that's how the job is done. Well, I think, you know, borrowing is a much more positive word, but it is not the word that is being applied to the academic work done by former Harvard president Claudine Gay, who recently stepped down after accusations of plagiarism. No, it isn't. Uh, As president of Harvard, Claudine Gay is obviously an academic, but her case is also political. The political activist Christopher Christopher Rufo helped to publicize the accusations against her, and the scrutiny into her writing came after she appeared, uh, along with the presidents of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Pennsylvania at a congressional hearing on campus anti-Semitism, where their lawyerly defense of a student's right to engage in anti-Jewish speech provoked national outrage. So, wait a second. First of all, that sentence is leaving out the fact that this hearing was itself convened by conservative politicians who control the House, and that one of the lead questioners was Elise Stefanik, a very right-wing and Harvard-educated Republican congresswoman. And the last part of that paragraph seems familiar to me, as in New York Times familiar. <clears throat> uh, I meant to put quotes around that part and mention that it is from the New York Times. I, sorry. We seem to have some work of our own to do on the topic of plagiarism here at the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Fortunately, we have the journalist and former Biden speechwriter Nate Rawlings here to set us straight. Nate Rawlings was a speechwriter for then-Vice President Biden from 2015 to the end of the Obama administration, and he's also written for the Undersecretary of State, the President of the World Bank, and others. He also wrote for Time Magazine's international team. A former Army officer, Nate, served two combat tours in Iraq as a platoon leader in 2006 and as an embedded combat advisor to the Iraqi Army in 2008-2009, both with 4th Infantry Division. He holds a BA in History from Princeton, an MS from Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, and an MA in International Affairs from Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. Nate, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
Good to see you, Nate. Um, normally, we would we would have had. We've done a lot of shows about. The, I talk about the war in Iraq all the time because I wrote about it also. And and you and I met there, and I embedded with your unit when I first went to Iraq in, in 2006. But we're not here to talk about that. We're going to talk about your speechwriting life. Um, there's been a lot of reporting and, and conversation about the Claudine Gay case, and we've been reading all about it. But this podcast is about the intersection of politics and literature. So we're going to focus on the role that plagiarism has played in the political sphere. As Suki just said, you were a speechwriter for Joe Biden uh, when he was Obama's vice president. But before you worked for Biden, he was embroiled in a plagiarism scandal that helped end his, 19, end his presidential campaign in 1987 and 1988. Were you and other staffers when you came on to, his, to work for him aware of that whole deal? Yeah, so I'll just say, first of all, Whitney, it's, it's great to see you and not in Baghdad. Uh, that's where we met the first time. Um, yeah. And on a quick personal note, we spent a lot of time during that trip and in the years since then talking about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I don't think we ever envisioned that I would be a White House speechwriter. Um, that was a, a wonderful you know, opportunity and, and very fortuitous and another story for another time. Um, yeah, so when I was uh, preparing to interview with that Vice President Biden in the summer of 2015, I read everything I could get my hands on, everything that I he'd written, everything that was written about him. So I was certainly aware of some instances in his long political career where he may have been, let's just say, less than careful in his citations and things like that. But I think that the incident you're going for here is is the Neil Kinnock one. Yeah. So for listeners who might not remember the 1987 incident, um, I'll just give you all the, the details. In September of 87, a campaign staffer for Michael Dukakis gave a video to, to a Des Moines Register political reporter named David Yapsen. Yes, Michael Dukakis, my childhood political hero, gave There's a video a name you don't hear much to anymore. a Des Moines Register political reporter named David Yepsen. And per the Washington Post, the tape showed, and I'm quoting here, a side-by-side comparison of Biden's remarks at a recent debate with the statement of a fiery British politician, Neil Kinnock. So here are the remarks. Again, all of this comes from a 2019 Washington Post article by Nina Satija, which we'll link to in our show notes. So one clip on the tape had this quote from Kinnick. Why am I the first Kinnick in a thousand generations to be able to get to university, he asks in the speech. You're supposed to do that in a British accent, Sugi. What, what is going on? This is a British politician. Welsh. He was oh, a Welsh, Welsh politician. Then. Why am I the first Kinnick in a thousand generations to be able to get to university, he asks in the speech. I won't subject anyone to the rest of that. Um, referring to his ancestors, some of whom were coal miners, he asks... Was it because all our predecessors were thick, those people who could sing and play and recite and write poetry, those people who could work eight hours underground and then come up and play football? And then that was juxtaposed with Biden's remarks at the close of a debate at the Iowa State Fair. Why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Is it because I'm the first Biden in a thousand generations to get to a college and a graduate degree that I was smarter than the rest? those same people who read poetry and wrote poetry and taught me how to sing verse? Is it because they didn't work hard? My ancestors who worked in the coal mines of Northeast Pennsylvania and would come up after 12 hours and play football for four hours? Does this count as political plagiarism? (laughs) So at the risk of sounding a little bit like our university presidents from their disastrous uh, congressional hearing, I will say um, uh, it depends on the context. Um, in this case, if you look at the literal definition of plagiarism, uh, did then Senator Biden use the words of others without giving proper attribution 
Yes. Uh, but I think it's helpful to look at the entire situation and, and what was going on in that summer of 87 and that 87 campaign. And so for any of your listeners who are interested in getting uh, the full story and the full picture on this, uh, or who are just interested in pre modern presidential politics, uh, required reading is a book by Richard Ben Kramer called What It Takes, uh, where a classic tome where he wrote about the entire 87 campaign and followed all the major um, candidates uh, throughout the trail. Um, it's like a thousand pages. Um, and so uh, he, he and Kramer, I think, dedicated six or seven chapters just to this particular incident, the lead up to it. Um, the actual incident itself where here at the Iowa State Fair uh, in his closing there and then the sort of fallout from afterwards. And so I think it's instructive to remember that in that summer of 87, Biden was a 44 year old senator who had almost 15 years in the Senate. But he was also this sort of young firebrand Democrat and kind of new Democrat um, who sort of shot from the hip a little bit and, and and gave these passionate speeches that people really connected with. Now, at the same time that he was running for president, he was also the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he was overseeing the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice nominee Robert Bork. And Bork was a hugely controversial nominee, a judge, a uh, former law professor who had written um, just things that a lot of Americans didn't agree with about privacy, um, about the nature of our Constitution, and was seen especially by the Democrats and by the left as, as a disastrous candidate who's going to take us off into Armageddon. So as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Biden also was sort of leading the campaign um, to interrogate this enormous record that, that Judge Bork had and prevent him from being confirmed to the Supreme Court. So at the same time that he's campaigning in Iowa and he's campaigning in New Hampshire, he's also back in Washington and doing these strategy sessions with legal scholars and and trying to manage these two very complex things at the same time. And so the way that um, that Kramer reports this out and, and the way that's written in the book is that Biden flew into Iowa at the last minute um, for that state fair and he didn't have a closing and knew he didn't have a closing written out. And so he told one of his staffers, he said, I'll just do the Kinnick thing that he'd been doing you know, for most of that summer. Um, and so in, in throughout that campaign, Biden had been quoting Neil Kinnick by name. He had been um, referencing that speech that he found to be really powerful and passionate. And this time he just kind of got way over his skis, uh, incorporated huge quotes from that and sort of en enveloped them into his own life narrative. Uh, sloppy, yes. Do I think that Senator Biden sat down and, and wrote out a speech uh, with the intent to not give proper attribution to uh, Mr. Kinnick? I don't think so. And in fact, when, when Biden was elected in 2020, one of the first people to congratulate and you know, publicly congratulate him and say that this is a great thing was Neil Kinnick, uh, who's had a long and illustrious career in uh, both British and European politics. I mean, that was the, you know, one thing I noticed when I was reading back about this is like how quaint it seemed that he would, get, that he would, his whole campaign would get derailed because he had quoted the guy in other places. He just forgot this time, but that like, it really did stop his campaign. I'm comparing it to today where, you know, former President Trump can say he wants to kill generals who oppose him. And everyone's like, yeah, whatever. He's fine. It's going to be good. Um, and uh, anyway, um, one thing that I want to talk about is like how to deal with this uh, uh, accusations of plagiarism. Because as in Watergate, a lot of times the cover up is is worse than the actual thing. I mean, the, the thing that they did, which I'm going to assume you're going to tell me is a bad idea, is they were like his campaign at the time was like that was the one time he did this. That's it. he's never ever done this before. So <laughs> how would you have handled this if it had, if you had been on the staff at the time? 
Well, yeah, first of all, you never want to say anything is an isolated incident, especially if something as broad as, as a campaign, because then, you know, reporters are obviously going to dig further into everything that's been said and, and things like that. Um, I, t- I agree with you that this seems very quaint because we had four years of a president who said, as far as I know, next to nothing that was true and, and just outright fabrications made things up and, and then just wild, outrageous and crazy. I know right now things. saying that the, the insurrection in, didn't happen or was a beautiful day. I mean, that's just crazy stuff compared to, okay, I borrowed a couple lines from Neil Kinnock. Yeah, or, or outright channeling, you know, or maybe borrowing without attribution lines from Hitler in your speeches. Oh, okay. uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing some a little bit of that going on right now. Um, so, so, yeah, in, in some ways, I think in a modern political context, this would have been a little bit of a one-off story. Um, the problem that he ha- that they had was that it was part of a larger context of, of things that reporters were starting to dig up where there were little um, exaggerations or other parts of his record, um, which we can talk about more. Um, but then ultimately it snowballed into the reporters. Um, he talked about, you know, my ancestors who were coal miners uh, coming up out of the coal mines. And so the question that the campaign was getting was, does Biden actually have any members of his family or ancestors who are coal miners? And I believe the answer to that is no. And so Uh-oh. it had sort of okay, sort of gone a, de- a huge problem there. It has sort of gone down into this rabbit hole of of what is true and what is not. Um, and so I don't think this one isolated incident, while it is the sort of most well documented and probably most famous one, um, it, this one isolated incident was not what killed that candidacy. Uh, it was it was a lot of little things kind of snowballing along the way. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, that's what happened, has happened with Claudine Gay. They found a bunch of other examples, right? I mean, in, in Biden's case, he had stolen from Hubert Humphrey. And then they went back and looked through his law school records and found that he had plagiarized something way back in law school and had apologized. I mean, you just don't want people to start burrowing into your stuff. But, you know, um, anyway, I, 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 I would suggest to future campaign directors not to say this has never happened before. So, as Witt mentioned, Biden had looked at some sentences from Hubert Humphrey without crediting him. Um, here in Minnesota, we look askance at things like that. Um, and there was a kind of a law school thing, his law school records, notes from a faculty meeting that Biden had used five pages of a law review article, quote, without quotation of citation. Does this show that if we look back at the history of any politician, we're going to find examples like this? So I think the answer to that is... is um Probably, and especially in in terms of AI. Um, but but stepping back a, a second, I think one of the more interesting things of, of this, just as a historical incident, was some of the players here. Um, you talked about um, you know that a member of the Dukakis campaign had had given a reporter the tape of of Biden at the um, Iowa State Fair. But the, what really blew that up into a national context was a, a, a piece in the New York Times by a young Marie Dowd. 
Um, and, and so then she, as a, a young, eager journalist, kept kept pushing and pushing on that. The Syracuse accusations um, were, I believe, first reported out by a young E.J. Dion, who then went on to become a, a you know famous and, and a well-known liberal columnist. Um, and, and so there was the, the article there was a special to the New York Times of this long sort of deep dive into uh, Senator Biden's record at Syracuse Law. And so I think even more so than the Kinnick piece of just of itself, um, you know, it was this this sort of narrative that there were all these issues, uh, you know, throughout his, his career um, that really was sort of the nail in the coffin there. But to the question of if we'd started digging into um, anyone's record, I think, you know, back then it was in, 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 in a different context. Now, this almost always happens when you have some sort of organized opposition feeding this into the bloodstream. And we saw that with Claudine Gay, she had political activists, conservative political activists who clearly are well organized and well funded, who were going through every word she's ever written, um, trying to find things in order to, to have, you know, remove her from the presidency of Harvard University. Um, I think now that's going to become easier with AI because you can sort of go through every word anyone's ever written with some fairly simple prompts into Bard or Claude or ChatGPT, you know, say, Look for other um, instances of, of published material that that is similar or you know it, verbatim for this you know type of type of thing, and then and then upload their entire dissertation into you know that AI system. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing a little bit more of this. Um, but it also gets into um, just kind of the nature of speech writing too, because uh, one of my favorite speech writers is Peggy Noonan, who was a young speech writer for President Reagan. Um, and she always said that speeches are soliloquies. So you're writing a, a sole performance for a performer to um, to you're writing a sole performance for almost like an actor to give on stage. And and so in that sense, you don't have a lot of space with speeches. Um, a typical speech, you know, will just have a much lower word count than something you see in printed form. And so you're sort of trying for these turns of phrase and you're trying for these memorable lines and things like that. And any speechwriter is going to naturally draw on what they have heard before, or what they know before, or what they've studied. And so I think sometimes it's easy to veer off inadvertently into the territory of using someone else's line or something that's pretty similar to someone else's line, even without knowing it or, or without certainly without meaning to. Now, I think that's going to happen a little bit more, or we're certainly going to be able to, um, uh, check that a little bit more with AI. I think it's also going to happen a little bit more just with AI helping to generate speeches. Because if you're an overworked uh, speechwriter or communication staffer for a congressman or a senator, I can easily see someone in that. Um, and you have like a, um, a hard deadline coming up or a very tight deadline coming up where you've got to write a speech right now. I can see a context where someone, you know, types a prompt into chat. Well, this is definitely going to happen. Definitely going to happen. Sure there's there's gonna gonna lots of says, AI speeches. Oh yeah, you know, Congressman Whitney Terrell had had uh, an event get added at the last second, and so I'm his, you know, very overworked communications director, and I have to get the speech speech cranked out. So I'm going to type in a prompt that says, you know, write 2,000 word speech uh, in the um, style of of Whitney Terrell on X topic that includes, you know, three quotes from these types of people oh, uh, and and these references, and it's going to spit out a pretty halfway decent copy, and. I, I don't think this is going to happen in, in the level of like White House speechwriters, and I, I know most of them now, and, and they're under so much scrutiny that I don't think they would ever do this. But I definitely going to happen sort of in, in some of those lower ranks, and um, and and then you know I have enough faith in my fellow speechwriters that they wouldn't just take that 
copied, you know, cranked out by uh, AI and hit print that they would then use that as a first draft and sort of massage it and make it their own. But the problem is it's going to accelerate this idea of borrowing ideas and borrowing lines and things and just make it even harder to attribute it because you don't know where it came from in the first place. And then we're going to start getting around and around into the other side of this Rubik's Cube where we're going to have lines that come out and then we use a AI potentially to go through um, through that speech and then figure out it came from someplace else. And so I think it's just going to accelerate this um, words used to create other words. I just want to say here that I've had a semester in which I have had occasion to acquaint myself with Turnitin um, and also a number of AI detectors. And the way that those two things overlap is really fascinating um, because I think sometimes students who are like perhaps using AI in ways that they think are quite above board for things like brainstorming or et cetera, like it's not hard for things to travel in ways perhaps that we're not used to tracking or don't expect. I also want to mention, because I think this op-ed, I've returned to it so many times over the years because it gave me language for thinking about the ways that certain brands of racism work. Like I grew up in Maryland, as we were talking about a little bit before um, we started taping the show. And Maryland is technically the South and like culturally, maybe um, at least in the way that I grew up, more, more, more the North. And in this 2018 op-ed by Andrew Carl, who studies the history of segregation. This op-ed is called The North's Jim Crow. He talks about the selective enforcement of minor ordinances. Um, and I felt like this gave me so much of like a way to think about like racism that I would see and be unable to even talk about. Like, you know, like, this is really unfair. Like, and then people would be like, but there's a rule. And um and there is, of course, like a rule and kind of like just like public ethical culture that is against plagiarism, which makes sense. Um, and also the kind of scrutiny that you're talking about, right, is, of course, not applied evenly. And so it's kind of um, it's maddening to watch, you know, some people face the scrutiny and other people not face it. And of course, we we understand why sometimes like why sometimes that's happening and, and why sometimes it's not. Um so I don't know, for any of our listeners who haven't read this op-ed, um, I just found it like hugely, hugely helpful in thinking about the ways that like rules are applied to different folks. Well, specifically, yeah. Sugi, you brought this up to me, but the Neil Gorsuch, uh, people are talking about him right now, you know, according to Newsweek, quote, and by I did a really good job of quoting everything <laughs> except at the beginning of this piece. I was so nervous about screwing stuff up. Uh According to Newsweek, quote, several passages from a chapter of Gorsuch's 2006 book, The Future of Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia. Well, that sounds like a really good book. Uh, read nearly verbatim uh, from to a 1984 article in the Indiana Law Journal. Uh, the report also said in several other instances that uh, in that that said that in several other instances in that book and academic article published in 2000, Gorsuch, quote, borrowed from the ideas, quotes, the structures of scholarly and legal works without citing them. But this did not derail Gorsuch's confirmation. And yet, Claudine Gay, for similar things, is, has been forced to step down from Harvard. Nate, can you talk about, I mean, Sugi's hinted, obviously, I think we think Claudine Gay's race and gender had something to do with it. But what are what causes some of these plagiarism cases to catch fire and some to fizzle out. Yeah, this this was an interesting one because I think there were two separate things at play here. Uh, number one, it was just 
I think, few enough instances to where it didn't look like a pattern. Again, we were talking earlier about how with, with then-Senator Biden in 1987, it wasn't just Neil Kinnock. That was just the most sort of visible and, and memorable of, of those instances. But then, you know, issues with law school citations. And then as they started going back through and finding little inconsistencies or, or, or little exaggerations, and it just looked like a, a bigger part of a pattern here. And if this was just like two instances in a whole legal career where you were a judge and you were, a, a, you know, an academic and in, in, in writing quite a bit, it was it was just enough. But the cynic in me thinks that the second context is much more important here. And and this is something where I, I like to tell my liberal friends whenever they complain about, you know, democracy and when things don't go our way. Um, one of my favorite historians, Harvard historian Jill Laporte, uh, you know, wrote in her I think, wonderful book, These Truths, and I will cite it properly here, um, that democracy isn't about ideas and democracy isn't about ideals, although those things are very important. Democracy at the end is about math, and it's about having more of your people turn out for your candidate than the other side, or in the context of what we're seeing you know, quite a lot in, in voter suppression, or just having fewer people on the other side turn out than you're able to muster for, for your candidate. And so the way that played out here is that Gorsuch didn't need to convince millions of voters across the country that he was worthy of being on the Supreme Court. He needed to convince 50 senators plus the vice president if there was a tie. And in this context, um, after holding out, uh, holding open a Supreme Court seat for over a year and denying Merrick Garland anything close to a hearing or a fair a fair look, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell wasn't about to let that happen. And so I think in the Gorsuch case, it really wouldn't have mattered who was up there as long as they were, you know, halfway in the ideology that they were looking for and, and someone whose record was, was, you know, pretty presentable. Uh, this was like a fairly big deal from the beginning. Um, but I think the bigger context of discussion we're having here is that if it looks more like a pattern of, of behavior, you know, that's much more difficult to, to play down or much more difficult to come back from than if there's just one or two isolated incidents. And I, I agree with you. I think, you know, race and gender played a huge part in the Claudine Gay, you know, the, this this whole whole situation um and and you know and she was facing a very organized and very sort of well funded opposition um that just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and so that was going to be very tough to overcome okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. For our listeners who might have missed this gem, Christopher Rufo wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, um, which published, I think, around January 2nd or 3rd, which basically is like how we did this. Um, it is a real piece of work, kind of like that guy. Um, and it's just all out in the open. And, you know, I think your point about math is, I think, really well taken. I had not thought of it quite that way. I am also interested in, right, like Claudine Gay's appointment um, – is like basically the pleasure of like as an undergraduate, I covered the Harvard Corporation, the quote unquote shadowy body 
right? That is like behind the Harvard presidency. So like there, there's also just kind of the massive sway of public opinion. Like another example of this might be, I remember there was a point where Melania Trump uh, seemed to have taken a line that was like from a Michelle Obama speech and, and everyone sort of cackled with like gotcha glee and then like basically nothing happened. Um, so there are also these instances where there, where there isn't math, but just public opinion and the matter of swaying it in one way or the other, right? And so Christopher Rufo and his cronies, um, right, orchestrated this campaign um, that applied so much public pressure that a body that, like as an undergraduate, like the Harvard Corporation famously gave no fucks what anyone else cared, what anyone else thought about. Like they were just 100% like doing their own thing, um, which I remember very clearly. And then to watch them, you know, I was watching this and I was like, what's going to happen? What's gonna? And then I was like, the Harvard Corporation does not cave to things like this. And then I was like, oh my God, what is, and and then obviously like her inbox full of, must've been full of such vitriol. Like it was horrible to watch. So what about just like the cases where there's just public censure and no math? So um, it, it, it's interesting talking to some of my friends at academia, um, this is becoming a new field that's being weaponized. So we talked about, you know, having a, a very, um, organized opposition and being able to go through someone's entire record and 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 sort of find these little instances maybe and, and try to establish a fact pattern uh, that looks damning. Um, so my friends at academia are telling me that you know when it comes to even small rivalries with fights for tenure or or to be a department chair or all these types of things that go on, um, people are using AI to go through the records and the writing of their rivals or, or, or some of the, even some of their fellow colleagues and look for all these instances of where something might not be properly cited because the, the it, it's held in such high regard and because the stakes are so high. Um, and so I think that will continue uh, sort of all, all in all facets of this now that plagiarism has become, you know, one of these um, huge accusations that you think you can score political or, or otherwise, um, you know, points for whatever your thing is. Um, the Melania case is interesting has actually played a very small role in, in one of the reactions to this. So this was the summer of 2016 um, when Trump was running against Hillary Clinton and, and Melania made a speech at the 2016 convention where she uh, lifted or her speechwriter lifted lines from Michelle Obama's 2008 uh, convention speech. And, and this the woman who'd written the speech later confessed or, or she said, you know, she totally took responsibility and, and she was a, an employee of the Trump organization and said, I wrote it, you know, I, I've always liked Michelle Obama and, and I, I didn't know that I was, you know, sort of borrowing some of her lines. Um, so, but a, a week or so later was the Democratic convention and then Vice President Biden was speaking at that. I did not write that speech, my, my boss did, but my job was to take the final text and run it through every plagiarism detection software that on the planet and try to and try to see if there was anything in there that could possibly be misconstrued um, as having, you know, tripped into this because you're right. There was so much schadenfreude out there with Melania. There was so much just like, like public, you know, kind of laughing and, and everything like that. We wanted nothing like that to happen here. And so, it, you know, you're familiar both as, as, as teachers, if you're doing this, um, you, you run the, the text through the software and it comes up with these things, flags, and it says, this line has been seen somewhere else. And, and the good ones will tell you where it's been seen before. And we had, you know, six or seven lines, but they were all from other Biden speeches. And so and, and every politician, anyone who's ever given a speech will recycle some material. They'll use similar lines. They'll quote them, you know, 
uh, they'll say things they've said before, stump speeches especially. You know, stump speech literally will given be given hundreds and hundreds of times. So any anything like that, you're going to have instances where it shows up in another speech there. Um, and so we, we double checked everything, kind of went through everything with a fine tooth comb, and it was good. He gave the speech; it was well received. Um, the next Monday, I think, after the speech or, or early that next week, we got a call from a political Politico reporter, I think it was, who said we found a line in this speech. Um, that was very similar to a line from a Bill Clinton speech from Oh, no, you must have had a heart attack. I mean, I just, just absolutely lost it. And clearly it was a opposition research plant that some Republican had given this reporter, you know, uh, the Bill Clinton speech or something like that. So we went back and we, and we were like, you know, it was some throwaway line about America's role in the world. It was something like so anodyne that I literally don't remember what the line was. But, you know, it was something that we knew that Biden had been saying for years and years and years and years. So we started going through and talking to old staffers about when he started saying that. And we talked to his speechwriter from like when he was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in like the 80s. And he actually so like this said, is like a full on panic in the office if you're calling somebody from like – it's not Way a back it's, there. So, well, they seem like a full on panic. That it actually happened a lot because he had uh, Vice President Biden, now President Biden, had such a long record where okay. we got in touch with old staffers about all kinds of random questions. And because, you know, he might actually ask us, he'd say, well, I remember when I said something about like, you know, the nuclear or the, the salt salt two treaty, you know, and this is something in the 70s. And so we could go back and, and mostly so we could go back and look through the records and find, you know, what he was saying about that or the role he played. And occasionally, yeah, we would we would get in touch with old staffers and, you know, the Biden world is, is pretty robust. And so people are always happy to pick up the phone and say, yeah, you know, here's the context of, of what we were doing there. So we, we talked to one of his old speechwriters who actually remembered. He said, yeah, we were on a, a Codel to somewhere in Eastern Europe and, 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 you know, the senator and I actually batted that line back and forth on the plane. Let me let me dig through some boxes in the attic. and I'll, I'll find it for you. And he came back with a speech from like 1984 where, you know, this line was in there verbatim as he sort of had kept saying it throughout the years and everything. So we sent, you know, took a snap of that, sent it back to the reporter and said, here you go. If you have any problem, you should call Bill Clinton's speechwriter and ask how a line very similar to this uh, while Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, you know, made its way into a speech from from mid Clinton presidency. And of course, the reporter just dropped the whole thing and nothing ever happened because then it's a non story. Um, but but it just shows how and I don't you know fault the Clinton speechwriter. I'm sure that this was someone who had been just looking through foreign policy speeches or just had internalized, you know, the, the sort of discussion about America's role in the world and then came up with what they thought was a pretty good line um, about, to that effect. And then it turns out, you know, someone had used it before. That is an amazing I story. I want to point out a couple. Yeah, that's a good story. I was thinking, I want to point out a couple of things. Also, you, you mentioned the weaponization of this, like, these things do have momentum because they're used as opposition resistance. They're used as political tools. And it used to be, so in the original, we'd mentioned that, that, that a videotape was given to like a Dukakis staffer gave a videotape to a reporter. And that's how the whole Neil Kinnock thing started with Biden in 87. That staffer, after it came out, um, resigned, right? It was bad that he had given that, that he got found out having turned the tape over, Right. Which was what caused the scandal. Now, Rufo, as as uh, Sugi was saying, like is very public about, hey, this is great. We're going to do it. All right. So this is my question. I'm just saying those things. Why does it matter? 
I mean, I get for an academic, okay? Academics are all about citations and citations are part of how you build your career and those are really, you know, like, but for a politician who is borrowing stuff all the time, why does, why do people get so worked up about plagiarism charges in speeches? It seems dumb. It's, it is a great question. I, I don't have a masterful answer here. I think it's because people are so cynical about politicians in general and the thing they crave is authenticity. You know, when I go home to Tennessee, people who are Trump supporters, what they see, they say, well, what, they say he's not a politician. He tells it like it is. He he believes the things he says. And so I think a lot of times, for better or for worse, people are craving authenticity. And so if you have an instance where it appears that a politician is is borrowing or, or flat out plagiarizing, you know, lines and things like that, then it just sort of adds to this narrative that everything here is inauthentic. That this is just someone who will say and do anything to get elected, will say and do anything to stay in power, will say and do anything to raise more money. And and it just it just adds to this really, you know, detrimental uh um you know view of politicians. Now the one thing I will say, having spent a lot of time with with Joe Biden, um, he's a very authentic person. He believes the things he says. Um, he's sort of famous for uh, writing and rewriting and working on his speeches almost to the point where he's walking on stage, much to the sort of stress of his speechwriters. Um, but I think what he's craving for and what he's striving for there is something very authentic that he wants to say in that moment and connect with the audience. You know, he was famous in, in this time around the Neil Kinnock incident for giving 45, 50 minute speeches where, you know, his staff would literally be looking at their shoes saying like, Senator, wrap it up. And but he thought if I have more to say and if I have one more person that I can connect with in the audience, then I want to do that. And I think people appreciated that. And so I think that um, why we care about, about plagiarism is because it just feeds this narrative of, of inauthenticity um, and that politicians will sort of say and do anything to, to get what they want. I guess I would say it means maybe you've read a couple fucking books and you might actually have something that you can refer to, you know, like have you paid attention to Neil Kinnock, who I've never even heard of, right? Whereas Trump had doesn't, I, I would try to find some plagiarism for former President Trump, but there's not any, because he never writes anything and he's never read any books, so we can't plagiarize anyone, you know? Anyway, that's my comment there. I'm not, I'm not asking you to actually respond to that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And so this gets into something I think really interesting about just the craft of speech writing, because there are reasons both sort of tactical and, and moral, but also strategic to actually outright quote somebody. And the best example I can think of in, in, in my speech writing career when I was writing for the president of the World Bank, he was giving a big speech at the um, Munich Security Conference. And we were trying to figure out a construct to talk about how the World Bank fit into sort of the national security foreign policy world, US and Europe. And so um, I did a lot of sort of reading about um, you know what people were saying in this context. And I, I found uh, a piece in a, a blog called Small Wars Journal by a woman named Nadia Shadlow, who's a, a well-respected foreign policy and national security expert on both sides of the aisle, but at the time was serving, I believe, as a deputy national security advisor for, for President Trump in his National Security Council. And she wrote a piece about what she called the um, political and military and economic levels, uh, or the political, military, and economic context in the level between peace and war. And I thought that was just a really neat construct for sort of where the World Bank fit there. So I, I, I took one of her best quotes 
quoted her by name um, and then built a whole speech and, and a sort of whole argument around this this context. And I remember Jim Kim, the World Bank president, read this. And first of all, he said, who, who is this? Why are we quoting this person? And what is the small wars journal? And so I told him that people in the room here will know that publication. They will know this person. Um, so that gives you a little bit of sort of uh, gravitas in terms of this topic. But even more importantly, it now allows us to, to then build on this and talk about you know, this this whole construct that she started. And I think we can talk about where our the World Bank fits into this um, into this broader uh, theme. And so there's reasons there as a speechwriter to always quote somebody important um, and then from there build things out there. And so, um, you know, in addition to just maybe laziness or um, not wanting to offer up, you know, say that someone else had this idea, people don't, but there are always really important reasons to go ahead and just give someone the credit for their thought, for their idea, for their line, and then quote them. And, and that happens all the time. I've been involved in some activism. And I mean, what you're describing also, right? Like sometimes people actually are writing their words specifically to be taken, right? Like that's what a press release is. Like it is a, a communications person's dream to have something like wholesale taken out of what they've written and planted in something. And I can think of times that um, like a, a phrase has been constructed in a certain way for a certain reason with the hope, the hope that it will be repeated. And then when that happens, when you can see those fingerprints the people who have generated it are thrilled and are totally fine with no attribution, which is like just the other the other side of the coin. I wonder if you have any favorite historical cases of political plagiarism that you've read about or studied. So I, I was hoping to talk about um, a historical case actually of non-plagiarism, uh, of, of something that is, is sort of embedded into the DNA of, of American political discourse now, but, but came from a whole different context. And so um, it's this idea of, of America as a shining city on a hill. And so if you say that phrase to most people, they will say, oh, that was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan called America a shining city on a hill. And we still hear Republican politicians today say, you know, as President Reagan, as Ronald Reagan said, you know, America is a shining city on a hill, X, Y, Z, and into this, you know, whatever it is, the hell it is they want to talk about after that. Um, what I found really interesting about this, this is that the shining city on a hill line came from uh, a sermon from John Winthrop in 1630 when he was sending forth pilgrims to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He himself was actually quoting Jesus from the book of Matthew. So it goes even way back beyond that. And, and so then now you have a line that people take to encapsulate America that someone was using in a speech four centuries ago to send people to uh, essentially colonize or to be pilgrims into a land that didn't become the United States for another 150 years. But what I found really interesting in terms of how this gets into the context of American exceptionalism is that the first president to tie this to American exceptionalism was John F. Kennedy in 1961, who quoted John Winthrop by name. And then throughout the 1980 campaign, Ronald Reagan quoted John Winthrop by name and talked about the sermon and, and connected it to this sort of, you know, very foundational uh, part of our history. Um, he even gave a speech in, in late in the campaign where he said, you know, I've been quoting John Winthrop a lot, gave the line and then and then talked about what that meant in his context. But what he really did is he again, he took that line and that image and then he made it his own. But he always gave the proper attribution there. And, and again, he, I think he was doing something very strategic and connecting with that portion of our history, but also then laying out a vision for where he thought America should go. 
we can argue whether that vision was good or bad or for better or for worse, how it turned out. But people who revere Reagan and people who you know believe in, in that vision will almost always connect that back to him. And interestingly enough, because it only got used sort of once with Kennedy, he really didn't land with him. And so I think this is a, a really great example of taking an idea, taking a line, Whitney, as, as you've said, you know, kind of outright taking taking ideas and, and making them your own, but but also tying it back to um you know, the, the actual person who said this. Another, I think, interesting historical example of of apportioning a, a, a certain phrase or, or, or of um, uh, making a certain phrase your own. Um, one of my favorite speechwriters, I think, as I said, is Peggy Noonan, who is just a lovely writer and really wrote some of Reagan's best speeches. And, and I think one of the best she ever wrote uh, was in 1984. Reagan was speaking at the 40th anniversary of the D-Day landings. And she had been a White House speechwriter for something like three months and had never actually met the president when she got this assignment. You know, Reagan's going to be speaking um, at the University of the Normandy landings with Normandy veterans there. Go write a speech. And so she wrote this speech that that in and of itself was was very good, um, kind of one of these classic speeches. And then when she found out that some of the uh, veterans of this particular part where uh, Reagan was going to be standing on a cliff called Point du Hoc, where a company of army rangers had scaled the cliff under heavy German fire to take out, um, you know, German artillery batteries in one of the sort of most heroic and revered portions of that battle and maybe the whole war. Um, when she found out that some of the uh, rangers from that action were going to be there and sitting in front of President Reagan, she scratched out a line where he said something pretty anodyne, like we have some, you know, veterans from Normandy here. And she wrote, hand wrote, and this is in one of the um, uh, speeches that you can find in the Reagan archives. She hand wrote, these are the boys of Point du Hoc. And that became the line. And that's what people remember from that speech. And that became you know, the title of books and it became the title of, of news stories. And, and everyone remember where Reagan said, you know, these are the boys of Point du Hoc, the men who took the cliffs, the champions who helped free a continent, the heroes who helped end the war. Um, and what was interesting about that was that uh, years later, Peggy Noon admitted she kind of stole a portion of that line from a book, a nonfiction book about baseball oh. called The Boys of Summer. Of course, that actually became a, what, a Brian Adams song later on. And then um, Doug Brinkley, the historian, dug into that a little deeper and found out that that author, who had written a book called The Boys of Summer, stole or, or borrowed that phrase from uh, a Dylan Thomas poem. And so here you have just this long sort of length of, of, of an old poem becoming a book title, you know, a portion of which going into a classic speech that's now part of our historical canon. And so this just shows how we always incorporate and recycle and reuse language. Um, and, and Peggy Newton actually said she about that that uh, that line. She said, well, it was a great steal. And, and she didn't use the line verbatim. She used a portion of it and then created a whole new context for it. And so I think that is happening that that happens in speech writing quite frequently. The good ones do much like a good author borrow and steal appropriately. Um, and but I think that with this sort of modern context of AI with the ability to dig quickly and deeply into everything everyone's written, we're going to see more of these patterns emerge and we're just going to have to decide, you know, does this count as something nefarious or does it not? Nate, thank you so much. I feel like there's so much more discussion we could have and have the feeling we're going to have to. Um, but for now, we'll, we'll say thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and, and yeah, more, much more to talk about, but I'll just have to listen to more episodes and hear what you all are talking about later on. See you later, my friend. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. 
You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!